You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 35, 1980s Night of the Juggler, featuring the Puerto Rican 500, a living Raggedy Ann doll, Brolin Superbeard, Psycho Dan Hedaya, two directors, an injured star, multiple car crashes, peep shows, grindhouses, runaway taxis, junkies, pimps, hookers, hustlers, winos, gigolos, stabbings, grabbings, and Cliff Gorman's lazy eye. Martin. Yes. A brief poem by Tyrone Green. Dark and lonely on a summer's night. Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. Watchdog barking. Do he bite? Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. Slip in his window. Break his neck. Then his house, I start to wreck. Got no reason? What the heck? Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. C-I-L-L, my landlord. Welcome back to another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how you doing? Doing all right. You happy to be back doing like a normal episode this time? We're not doing a mini series or any kind of weird like thought exercise or autorist uh, rabbit hole. We're just doing four movies. Just really. movies. It was much more, I mean, just on the surface, more enjoyable, you know, just like, and I hadn't seen any of them. So it was just like, oh, cool. And I, I liked and there are three of them I loved. The one we'll get to was the other one, <laughs> which we watched together last night. Uh, what even disappointed me, and I'd seen it a few times before and owned it, but it was one of those revisitations where I went, hmm, maybe this isn't as good as I remember. <laughs> far, being. far from it. It is horrible. But our main movie, Spine Number 35, is 1980's Night of the Juggler. A movie that I consider to be possibly one of the craziest fucking things I've ever witnessed in my lifetime. Yeah, you were talking this up for a while to me. And for our listeners, we did a really fun um, midway through the year um, marathon at uh, Jacob's house where he programmed five movies that I did not know what we were going to see. Um, a good buddy of mine, Daniel, came in. He's one of our favorite listeners. He came in to, for the weekend. 
a couple other friends were there and we did these five secret screenings. Uh, Jacob put trailers in between. It was super fun. Um, made some ridiculous Italian food. I brought a bunch of beer over. We made cocktails and super fun. But Night of the Juggler was the final film. It was the one. It was because this is the second marathon that we've done. And last year, we we did six movies last year. We did five this year. Uh, but the last film last year, I was like, oh, let's have a party vibe to where like we're, we're burned out by the sixth movie. Let's just drink and have something we can kind of talk during. Where this year, I took a different strategy to where I was like, no, the last film, I want everybody to be like, oh shit, I gotta stay and pay attention to this fucking thing because like, Night of the Juggler, notoriously hard to see for years, isn't really on any kind of home video beyond like VHS. I found an illicit uh, copy on one of the torrent trackers. From um, Action Max. From Action Max. It, it was a cropped sort of HD uh, transfer. is the best I'd ever seen it because the, the only other time I'd really seen it before is that I programmed it at Vulcan actually when we were doing um, taps, taps and yeah. tapes outside and I played it on VHS. Actually, I think it was the very first taps and tapes screening I ever did. Um, and that was from a, a battered media VHS tape. And like, I had watched that with a couple friends like Rocky and stuff uh, over time, but like, that's the only way I'd seen it. So this was the clearest copy when we watched it, you know, a week ago together, uh, that I'd ever witnessed myself. And, I'm glad that we got to see it that way because like, man, there's even like shitty, grimy NYC detail that I was able to pick up just because it was a little clearer to where like that tape that I have is a a little muddy, let's say. I mean, it's awesome. You know, it really, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves on like double features or, you know, inspiration. It reminds me so much of good time, you know, of just this, like, it does not stop. It is a constant chase for an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. And it just, it starts right out of the gate. It's, you know, it's, it's 80. So it's like late new Hollywood, you know, but it has that great characterization from the beginning of this, like former cop who's a, uh, a truck driver comes back to his daughter. Their relationship is so natural and wonderful where he brings her hot dogs for breakfast on her birthday. She's so sweet and like smart and lovable. It is great. Like almost friendship. It seems like more than like father daughter, And then she's taken uh, through a case of mistaken identity. A really amazing setup. The daughter straight up feels like she's out of another movie. Like she's almost from like an ABC Saturday afternoon or like after school special type thing. Because she looks like Punky Brewster or like a Raggedy Ann doll. She has these goofy like overalls the entire time and big floppy like froey hair. Like she's really goofy and like lovable the entire time. And she just gets caught up in like the scummiest universe that you can imagine. Like this, there is uh, no washing or sanding down the, the uh, hard edges of New York in this. Like you really get into the, the nastiest, most like diseased corners of Times Square here. Absolutely. Cause um, one of the other films we're going to discuss today um, the nicest of the four, um, I think, does sand some edges. You know, it definitely creates more of a fantasy version of, of 42nd is, Street. And is of that Times time Square? Yeah. Yeah. It, it feel, out of the four, feels the, the nicest and more like, hey, this is a great place you can kind of find yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a sanctum 
for well, for the other. You and know? that's the thing I want to talk about with these four films. So to, to fill everybody in and stop beating around the bush a little <laughs> bit is we're going to go in chronological order. It's uh, 1971's Born to Win from Yvonne Passer, uh, who also did uh, early uh, secret handshake entry Cutter's Way, which this movie is also very bleak, but... I mean, anything compared to Cutter's Way is a fucking ray of sunshine. This is fucking Forrest Gump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but so we've got Born to Win, and we have 1980s uh, Times Square, also 1980s Night of the Juggler, and then 1981's Nightmare, which is the one you've already alluded to, <laughs> might have been the toughest sit, but also one of the gnarliest. Uh, and honestly, probably most notorious slashers, because again, kind of hard to see for a long time. Real Possibly mean. Possibly real mean, real ugly, um, almost like a B-side to maniac in a weird way. Yeah, real real psycho. But but it is interesting. I mean, and we'll, I guess we'll skip around here too, but like the different views of New York of these films, you right. know, because Night of the Juggler is, is definitely grimy. Um, but I think there are parts that are grimier in, um, in, definitely in Nightmare, but also um, parts of Born to Win um, in terms of where the character goes. It's kind of more of an awesome backdrop in Night of the Juggler of imagine having to find your daughter in this cesspool. But a lot of times he's like running past it. It's these more comedic scenes of like, oh my God, like it's, it's this upside down like carnival of like hell. Um, but it still is like, I don't know, palatable <laughs> compared oh, sure. because it's like, he's, he's, it's more of an action movie versus like born, you know, born to win is like this new Hollywood anti-hero character piece, which is like really dreary, um, less dreary than cutters way, but still very dreary. Well, it's also of a piece with a different time in movie making. I, I yeah. do like, the films that we selected here kind of run a decade long gamut to where you can discuss how New York looked on film um, from 1971 until, you know, 1981, like literally a decade. Uh, but I mean, to me, Born to Win, which for those who haven't seen it, it's Yvonne Passers, uh, who is a Czech new wave refugee along with like Milos Forman. Or was he, was he Polish? I thought he was Polish. He's no, Czech. It's, it's, okay. Yeah. Czech New Wave, uh, worked with Milos Forman a bunch, came over. This is his debut, you know, American movie. Um, and it's a hustler, like, street-level s- comedy, drama, character study where George Siegel is a heroin addict, just named J.J., who we're following him as he gets into various misadventures run-ins with uh, Pusher, who he calls uh, the geek, uh, Hector Elizondo, who's great in this. Amazing. Um, falls in love with Karen Black, who might have never been more charming. Like, it's she's really in, like, five easy pieces mode yeah. here. And but she's more annoying in five easy pieces. She's This one, it's much right. more like, oh, my God, like, don't hurt her. Yeah. <laughs> like, leave she, her out of and this. Th- and that's literally the role that she plays, is that, like, he basically meets her while trying to steal her car and she takes him home and almost has like sympathy for him. And it's like, look at this. It's like a a stray dog that she found on the street. And it's like, look at this shaggy guy. Like, I just kind of love him. And then they fall in love with one another. And and she's almost like the, the avatar for purity that you don't want to see 
uh, George Siegel kind of taint here and like pull into this really shitty world because the rest of his time, like his ex-wife or even current wife, they don't really re- yeah. really go through. They're so she's Paul now, Apprentice. Yeah, Paul Apprentice. She's uh, being pimped out by Hector Elizondo. Um, he's all constantly on the run from the mob because he tries to rip them off for like a package. His only buddy is like, this black dude who honestly reminds me of bubbles from the wire hundred percent, just like the seventies version of that. All they're doing is just going from score to score to score. Now I was reading the essay that came along with the fun city editions, uh, Blu-ray of the film that just came out. That's one of the other reasons I wanted to do these movies is that we got born to win on Blu-ray and we finally got Times square on Blu-ray too, after years of that movie kind of languishing and out of print DVD format. And now it's on streaming to too. I watched it on prime and that, now being hard. Yeah. yeah. Now being on streaming and it has a great transfer as well. It's totally restored. I mean, because that was that movie was the first 35 millimeter rep screening I ever attended after moving to Austin. I saw it at the Ritz as part of a, a teen rebellion series with Billy Jean actually in like over the edge on 16 millimeter and like just a really great collection of films. And that movie just totally blew my mind the first time I saw it on the big screen, but born to win fits to me more with like the movies like panic and needle park with Al Pacino, yeah. all the um, raffles and stuff from like all the, the raffles yeah. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. From that period or even midnight cowboy. If we're just sticking solely to like New York, like it's all about that street level hustler, loser, bottom like, feeders, bottom feeders. Um, mean streets is another one that like, because you have a young Robert De Niro in this as one of the cops who's constantly hust- like hassling George Siegel. And you're, you're right on the cusp of kind of like the, the era of New York that uh, Simon and Pelicanos' The Deuce chronicles because you're right on the edge of like pornography kind of taking over as an industry down there. Uh, the grindhouse is really moving in and, and becoming a prominent fixture in Times Square. I mean, even here in one of the earliest scenes where Siegel and his buddy try to rip off a safe, they stumble into the street and there's a double bill playing of Andy Milligan movies. You've got uh, Guru the Mad Monk and The Body Beneath. So like, this is a nice snapshot of sort of what the new Hollywood representation of the city would be to where like, to me, as somebody who's watched so many of these films, um, the end point of this is almost in my head has always been Bill Lustig's maniac. Like that's kind of the big turning point to where it goes from like this wheeling dealing a little more swinging and not as it's scary, but not as like terrifying kind of hellscape to where then maniac comes along. And it's like, if you leave your apartment and you live anywhere like close to the deuce, like you're probably getting robbed or stabbed or raped or something like nothing can help you. This is just mutants. The the, the mutants have overtaken the city, you know? Well, there's elements obviously in 76 with taxi driver. Yeah. Of, of just, and that's partly that Scorsese's, view of that world because he he paints it as noir well and our boy schrader too yeah and and yeah schrader very much is was kind of in his mind kind of a bottom feeder he was like he viewed himself in this kind of goblin-y way well that was the time where he like 
He got kicked out of his house. Yep. He was living in his car. He was actually driving a taxi at night, sleeping in porno theaters during the day. Like he basically was Travis Bickle for like a little bit there. And then he had like a bleeding ulcer, right? That he got admitted uh, to the hospital for. And while in the hospital had the idea for like, he had to, I he believe said it was a vision. Metaphor, yeah, yeah, it was like a vision of like all the taxis in the cities were like coffins with wheels, essentially. And that was the guiding kind of visual metaphor that he got out of the hospital and wrote it in like 10 days or something. And then De Palma, I, as the legend goes, De Palma uh, was the one who was showing Scorsese around because Scorsese um, had moved out to LA at this point and right. was working for Corman was doing editing jobs on like Woodstock mm-hmm. and ma- was just making boxcar Bertha to which John Cassavetes very famously said, great job, Marty. You spent a year of your life making a piece of shit. <laughs> but De Palma was the one who had gotten uh, the taxi driver script because he was kind of Scorsese's intermediary with all the USC dudes. Like he was the one who like introduced him to like Spielberg and Milius and Mm -hmm. all those guys. And they would just kind of all trade notes and cuts and stuff. And like he gave Scorsese taxi driver was like, I think you should do this. Like you should fucking not do any more Corman pictures or view yourself as like a gun for hire guy. Go back to New York and shoot this movie. So like De Palma was kind of a big catalyst and in, in, again one of the great depictions of New York ever committed to the screen one of the greatest movies ever made well that yeah. too yeah <laughs> yeah I know you knew that too but no it's it's interesting though and I don't want to get ahead because when we get to Times Square they're again a much more romantic view um sort of I, it's well, it's interesting it's got the grit but I do believe the story it tells is much more Times Square is a place for for runaways who like want to find themselves versus like again this hellscape you need to either escape or just are surviving on a daily basis here's the thing about Times square and i honestly born to win to a lesser degree than Times square but um Times square embodies one of my favorite uh, bill landis quotes um which i won't try to do verbatim but he goes into the egalitarian nature of the deuce and 42nd street and how one of the great things about it is that everybody, when you descended upon that area to either buy drugs or see movies or like find a hooker, do whatever you wanted to do. Like everybody became equal. So like there was no social status. Mm. You would see people coming from like the bridge and tunnel crowd. You would see gay dudes. You would see hustlers, pimps, hookers, everything. But, like, everybody, when you went into the grindhouse in particular, like, in that dark room, you were all one. Like, it didn't matter if you were a pimp. It didn't matter if you were a fucking wall. (laughs) Exactly. That's precisely where I was going with it. Because Bill Landis, writing from the point of view of a guy who washed, more or less washed out of Wall Street, moved into the deuce and then became a fixture there, both as, like, a homemade film critic and a projectionist and worked at all the theaters and stuff. So like he studied kind of just like the sociological nature of the deuce and and movie theaters itself. So to me, Times Square is like that idea of like, you can quit your job, run away from home and go there and you can find your people because you've, because others have all gone there for a specific reason. And then something like flowers can kind of grow out of that cracked concrete because it becomes a um, sort of like uh, 
pressure cooker for creativity. And that's what Times Square eventually becomes about. It's like these two wandering souls meet, you know, break out of a mental institution and go and find themselves in Times Square and like create music together and, and love. And like they live in one of the great old port, like gay porno palaces, uh, the Adonis theater on like eighth street. I believe it was like, that's their home. Like that was an actual porno theater that they shot that in. And then you also have one of my favorite, uh, New York characters of all time in, in Tim Curry's uh, DJ, Johnny LaGuardia, who's like, he's so fucking cool in this movie while also being a total piece of shit. Yeah. He's, he's complex too, because he, he, um, I think there is a, a definite a definite gray area in the way the film views Times Square because it is again like you said this kind of great equalizer a place you can go to find yourself um, and do like do soul searching and and connect. Like she talks about there's a seed and or he says there's a seed inside you you need to like cultivate right you know like when the real you comes out um, and at the same time there is this undercurrent of like you're an irresponsible adult for like pushing kids out of their homes. There's a sense of he's like, he's, well, he's sort of lecherous. Yeah. Too, is yeah. That he comes in and he plays up on this like teen idol kind of look. And he even not preys upon these girls, but like there's an undercurrent. It, it, there's a, there's a definitely a scene. One of their first fights that they ever have is because he's in there like laying on the bed and talking to one of the girls with vodka with vodka. And she's and 12 and she's, yes, yeah, she's, she's certainly not of age. Um, but it's like, he's, like, I think it's it's some of the harder edges that Alan Moyle, the writer-director of the movie, who also made other great music classics like Pump Up the Volume and Empire Records. I don't know if I would call that second one a classic, but it certainly be, has a massive cult fan base now. But he sort of disowned this movie for years because the producers changed a lot of the stuff from his original script. It was supposed to frankly be a lot gayer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the soundtrack was replaced a lot. Cause there's the, one of the reasons it's been hard to find for like years and hasn't really existed on home videos because it has what like Brian Ferry and the pretenders, the pretenders, the cars, the Ramones. It's insane. Um, it's like wall to wall to wall, like soundscape. Well, it's just, it's just prog rock. It's just like 1980 prog rock, like, but all or that new wavy, that new yeah. wavy slash. It's all just like hits, right? Like number one hits on the radio, and it's he, he didn't want that. Like he wanted the more punk feel because they eventually form a, a duo called the Sleaze Sisters, and it's like he wanted that to be the soundtrack. A lot like how I feel like Pump of the Volume is closer to like his original vision because like he always wanted like Christian Slater and like the 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 songs that he's handpicking and putting on his pirate radio station to become like kind of like the Greek chorus of that movie to where here it's obvious that they were just like needle drop, needle drop, needle drop, needle drop. Like we just need something about this film that we can sell and make it a little less gay and a little less hard edged. Yeah. It'd be like a John Hughes score for repo man. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, that's a, that's a really good comparison. It's like, if you took the breakfast club and like simple minds and stuff, and then you tried to 
apply it to like an Alex Cox movie. It's like, uh, this doesn't quite work. Yeah. It's like, cause like, yeah, it's interesting. You know, with, with Repo Man, it's about like punk culture and he was interested in that. Yeah. Obviously American punk culture. And frankly, a part of it. Like, yeah. He'd ingratiated himself. Absolutely. He's and right. I believe Moyle was the same way. Cause Moyle's a British guy too, who, who made this uh, East coast version essentially. Yeah. It, it makes sense because, but it is, you know, watching times square, well, I, I, I see the dissonance between, okay, this was obviously the studio, like you said, choosing these songs. I love all that music, too. <laughs> like, I'm a huge Pretenders fan. I love the Cars. You know, I love, obviously, when it starts and it's Brian Ferry and, so Jacob and I, one of our secret handshakes for music is Roxy Music and Brian Ferry. And so we're going to see them this fall, um, which is going to be awesome. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, I wouldn't change it, but it'd be interesting to hear because like their most hardcore song is the Ramones, which is kind of like the Kmart version of punk. I love the Ramones, but it's like very much for the for the masses versus like real. Yeah, it's like the yeah. clash. It became commercialized Absolutely. at a certain point. Yeah. Like it's still punk, but like they found their their radio ready success. Yeah. But the thing about Times Square that I also like is that it does comment early on before it really started to happen on how there was a movement to reclaim Times Square and rejuvenate it and kind of get rid of uh, the unwanted seedier aspects of it because the it, this is a story of like a rich girl and a poor girl who essentially run away together and the rich girl's dad is a mayoral candidate who's running on a campaign to clean up the whole city and it's kind of a surrogate for Giuliani or at least like a precursor yeah. to Giuliani. Cause it's like 12 years before Giuliani was actual mayor. Right. Yeah. You've got, you're a while out and obviously this had been approached a couple more times in like uh, New York's history. Like Jason Bailey just wrote a great book um, mm. on it called fun city cinema, where he actually chronicles like all the different may- mayors and how cinema was corresponding with uh, the the actual kind of sociological happenings in New York and how mayors and like Lindsay Anderson and Ed Koch and everything, how they were running and trying to treat crime and like the broken windows uh, laws and stuff of like trying to clean up the city and make it a little better, at least air quotes, more presentable to or outside investors. Because I mean, the deuce goes into that as well, mm. especially as you get into the, the second and third seasons is that it's about like, okay, porno rises becomes a cottage industry inside of New York. But then all these other things sort of follow in its wake, especially like more porno theaters, more, uh, sex shops, more. And then the rise of videotape actually leads to like video stores and everything. And like Giuliani is the one who's coming along and it's like, Whoa, we got to get rid of all of this and make it fucking Disneyland. And it kind of is now. Well, it totally is. Like it's Times horrible. Square. You can still wander around. I haven't done it in a decade or so, frankly. I haven't been to New York in a while. But, like, you can still wander around and see the remnants of, like, old New York, like, kind of sticking out, like, old marquees that have now been turned into, like, Target Disney signs. stores. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Or like, you know, Ripley's Believe It or Not and things like that to where it's all tourist attractions now, but like 
if you look hard enough and you know the geography and like where some of that stuff actually was, like you can find pieces of it, let's say. Yeah, it's um for those of you who don't know Jacob as well as I do, like obviously he's loves these kinds of movies, like and and loves Times Square and the history there. And I, I watching these three Every three minutes, I was like, oh, of course, this is like his favorite movie. Because I know you now, and I know all your favorite kind of shit. And I'm like, this is just strumming your fucking, your strings. Because like, especially like Times Square, it's about Times Square too, which is so interesting. Because a lot of the films I've seen that take place in this area, it's a backdrop. You know, for like, you know, pushers and, and wheeler dealer characters or, you know, taxi driver and just uber violence. And Times Square is like more of this it has similar again to empire records. It's like, they're going to close the the record store. It's that kind of like, yeah. it has that, that almost like footloose thing of like, we're all going to bind together as teens and save, you know, save the, our favorite soda shop or whatever. Cause the, the man's coming in to close it down. And it has that kind of energy underneath it. There's another great, square <laughs> uh, music and a West Coast movie called FM mm-hmm. about a, a radio station that stages a concert with like Linda Ronstadt and stuff too. My number one. Exactly. Uh, that's why I bring it up too. <laughs> but that's again to, to basically like escape uh, a big corporation coming right. and buying in and turning into like Yacht Rock or whatever yeah. the fuck it is. I mean, Airheads. That Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi and Brendan Fraser movie is like UHF all about that as well. UHF too. But uh, the other thing, the weird movie that Times Square also reminds me of is actually another Cliff Gorman movie. Uh, Cliff Gorman plays the horrible villain in Night of the Juggler, but in Angel, uh, which would come a couple years later in 1984, he's the detective who teams up with the high school hooker and like becomes part of this weird kind of outsider family mm-hmm. that forms only on skid row uh, on the West coast. But they always felt like, like East West sides or like the, the death row records to uh, P Diddy and, and biggies like East and West coast, like rap versions of that. <laughs> if you can do that for Cliff, Gor- you know, Cliff Gorman movies, because Cliff <laughs> Gorman also was, was always the guy in my head, like I love Angel and I love Night of the Juggler, but every time I see Cliff Gorman, like he to me was um, the uh, Lenny Bruce and Dustin Hoffman stand in in all that jazz mm. to where he's the one who's basically playing Dustin Hoffman, playing Lenny Bruce, that like uh, Bob Fosse is trying to like cut together like Roy Scheider's stand in for Bob Fosse, I should say is trying to cut together like his movie while staging like his latest musical and everything. And like Gorman's just full on, like trying to do Lenny Bruce's material. And it's funny, but it's like, he's such a weird, he's creepy. He, everything I've seen him and he has an energy to him of like, it's uncomfortable. Like he's great, but it brings a weirdness. He, in a strange way, reminds me of David Hess, but oh, like yeah. a more almost like New York stage actor version of, of David Hess, or a, I guess a little more respectable, even though he's been in these kind of scumbag movies. But David Hess was never actually in a Bob Fosse movie, you know? Yeah, kind of like he's a even more, a more attractive Joe Spinell. It's again like that kind a little of bit, yeah. like these guys who just play dirtbags 
really well. They just they live in the filth. They were born in the filth. Well, what you're getting at early earlier too is interesting. Is that so much of the the cast of these films are like New York actors that we know yeah. from that time of again like someone like you know Robert De Niro and it's really cool to kind of sink into these movies and just think about De Niro was doing like off Broadway plays you know and the De Palma stuff yeah all all like the wedding party stuff and just like, Hi Mom yeah and uh, well he's not in Hi Mom but he's in Greetings is the one that yeah. he's in that was like sixty seven. No, Greetings is 70. Okay. Because Wedding Party is 68 or 69. Greetings is 70 and Hi Mom's 71 or 72. Okay. Like you're in that, or that the turn of the 60s into the early 70s when like De Palma wanted to basically be the American Godard and was making these absurdist comedies. Before he became the American Hitchcock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because he gives that up and makes, well, a Sisters movie, is the one that kind Sisters of- and then he makes uh, Obsession with Paul Schrader. Oh, right. You know, with Paul Schrader disowns that movie because he cut the whole like third act out of the script. What also like um, Cliff uh, Robertson is supposed to just be the worst person to work with in like the history of Hollywood. Yeah, De Palma in that documentary about him That's talks where I about it, yeah. Cliff. He talks about Cliff Robertson like he's the devil. He's like, well, but he does it in that like super like. I think that was the most disarming part of that documentary for everybody is like, what a big goofball De Palma seems like. And he's like, holy mackerel, that Cliff, Cliff Robertson, not a nice fella, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it has a little bit of that David Lynch energy. He like doesn't curse and he has the kind of like Boy Scout thing. But like you watch what he produces, you're like a huge d- dissonance. But I, but, I, but, think I, he's but I believe a De Palma's more, more real dude than... Well, and I also believe like De Palma's pretty real in that documentary too, because like he cops to it where he's like, Look, sometimes it's just cool to film pretty girls. You know? Like yeah. that's just a thing that I like to do. Like he knows what he's doing. Like he's not he he's not a dummy and he I don't think he has, especially now as an like an older guy, any kind of airs of like like I think that's one of the cooler parts of that doc is that like he looks at his own filmography like a probably a more critical eye than we do to where he's like, ah, I don't know if that worked. And you're like, it's the untouchables. Like that movie rules, dude. And he's still kind of like, ah, you know, it's fine. (laughs) It's better than fine, sir. Yeah. But, uh, nightmare from 1981, also known as nightmares in a damaged brain. So this one was rough. Uh, also not as much of a New York movie as I remembered. Cause a huge chunk of it takes place in quote air quotes, Florida. Um, but man, the New York stuff that's in this, uh, connects it in my head to night of the juggler a lot. And I, I programmed, uh, the trailers before night of the juggler for our marathon, uh, nightmare was one of the trailers that we played and you had commented there. You're like, I've never seen this before. And I'm like, Oh God, we got to watch this. But as we were watching it, I had that sinking feeling the whole time to where I was like, Oh man, this is rougher than I remember. It's pretty incompetent. I mean, it really is. It's borderline nonsensical, like to where it doesn't doesn't make make any sense. All of a sudden we're in Florida, like after he was just in New York and like it's jumping time like a little bit, but those title cards make you think like it's all taking place with like almost like six nights and you're just kind of like, ah, what's happening here? But man, I think the stuff, we're all full-throatedly defend that movie is I think the stuff that's really gross and unsettling in it is like legitimately effective. Like all the Edward French gore effects, Mm -hmm. like this movie 
if you don't know, sort of infamously uh, touted itself and even used in the advertising, like the one trailer that we watched, it was like from the, spe- the special effects maestro Tom Savini from Dawn of the Dead and Friday the 13th. Like that, they sold this movie on the fact that Savini did. And I believe Savini sued them to take his name off of the promotional materials at the very least, because he might've worked like he, I think claims didn't work at all, but I think might've done like a little bit of work and then bailed for something else where like Ed French did the, the rest of the effects on it. But like the actual effects that are in it are pretty gross. There's a decapitation in it that so they show over and over again, over and over and over again in slow motion. That's reminiscent of pieces. Yeah. Uh, so and, pieces. And then the one like, head that he wakes up in the bed with like his mom yeah that feels like a direct lift from maniac which savini also worked on and appeared in frankly but like and i think all the weird like when he goes down into Times square because this movie doesn't really have a plot it almost has the same exact kind of narrative trajectory as maniac is that it's just about a guy who's losing his mind and starts killing women because like he might have seen his mom fucking a dude and then cut her head off, I think is well, what it's happens. his dad. Is it his dad? Yeah, because they're just doing some kink, and then he walks in as confused. Uh, very again, very similar to pieces. It's like kind of like yeah, some sexual. Or actually, no, pieces are because of the the puzzle. Yeah, pieces of the puzzle, and then she locks him in the closet, and then he comes in and cuts her her head off with the axe. Here, there's another decapitation. Um, but then he goes mad as like an older dude is trying to get therapy for it. It's not working, but get, has these like almost like epileptic foaming at the mouth fits before he goes and just murders the fuck out of shit. But like when he goes into Times Square, you get a nice early eighties kind of snapshot of Times Square, almost like Larry Cohen style Mm -hmm. is because you even commented like there's that whole walking scene where he's just looking for the next place that he wants to go and where you're like, Oh, they're just filming. Like people are looking at the camera. Yeah. Yeah. There's people who are just obvious, like pedestrians on the street, you know, civilians who are just looking at the camera and being like, Oh, what the fuck is going on here? Like, why is somebody filming us? Yeah, it's um well in the in the stuff with the killer like screaming is genuinely unsettling. Yeah, it's real um, gross. And it's it's sweaty. It's gross, it's sweaty. He's like he's like foaming Alka Seltzer, obviously, out of his mouth. Um, but it's like you know, it's very shrill, um, the whole thing. And there's a movie in there that I think could be interesting. So that one of the one of the narrative things that kind of comes together is there's a little kid who's a little punk. And he's constantly playing pranks. It's kind of a boy who cried wolf narrative going on. Of he's constantly, he's kind of like Tommy and like um, Friday Thirteenth Part Four. Like he knows how to build effects and makeup stuff, and he's constantly pretending to be stabbed. He creates a giant dummy with this really offensive mask um, with like light up eyes. Uh, he's, it looks like Black Sid Haig. Yeah, well, I asked that on the back of the cover. I was like, is that Sid Haig? And you're like, no, no, no. no. Um, but it's that's a robot black man. And then, and then it's kind of the sense of they try to have a, a twist at the end of that it was actually his dad who was the killer, and it doesn't. That's make the any part sense. that doesn't make any because it literally is tacked on at the end where the he goes on his massacre is basically being wheeled out after being shot like eight hundred times, 
where like the the mom comes home because that's the thing is that this is almost more as much as it advertised itself for like Savini and Friday the Thirteenth and shit. Like this is more of a Halloween ripoff than anything because it's all babysitters that he's murdering and like breaking in and but dumb and harassing like the worst, <laughs> wearing like see through nighties while they're watching these kids, which is odd. But anyway, um, but at the end. The, the mom comes home and is like, that's my husband. And you're like, wait, what? And it zooms in on the kid. He's like in the police car. And he like winks at the camera, smiles, and then it cuts to the... Th- it's trying to be this like kind of Shyamalan bump, 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 or like a fucking uh, usual suspects kind of thing. Or like Twilight Zone thing. Yeah. Where like the whole... It's supposed to be like the whole time it was really him. And you're like, but who... Who was this man? I don't know him. And then he eventually puts on the black man mask, which adds a whole other layer of problematic to it. It's not only incoherent, it's offensive. Yeah, it has elements. The the whole where it takes place kind of reminds me of the mutilator a little bit. Like yeah. that kind of slasher. Mutilator is, you know, compared to this work of art. Because Lisa fucking had, Citizen it, Kane, man. It's <laughs> Lords of Arabia. It has a coherent. Yeah, David Lean made nightmares. fucking mutilator. Um <laughs> After Fall br- break. After brief encounter. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the one scene that I do like, again, that adds this kind of grimy New York texture to it is they shoot in an actual adult uh, peep show bookstore yeah. type it's place. It's a weird peep because there's no glass. Yeah, where he can like reach through. that. Th- you put a quarter in and there's just a girl, live girl dancing in there and you can touch me if you want to and he can like actually reach through the, the little window and like throw money into her G string and shit, which is, I always link the two scenes between like, there's that awesome moment where like in night of the juggler where Brolin is chasing, um, somebody through, through times square and goes into a, a, obviously a real life peep show as well, which is even more insane because like, there's a dude like in the middle of it, like vending like quarters and stuff. And like, there are, there are bodyguards and, and bouncers and like, but he actually goes into the room where Sharon Mitchell famed uh, New York city porn star is there as well. Uh, but goes in, starts trying to question a girl to track down his daughter and gets into a straight up fist fight in the middle of one of these like dancing booths where people were like dudes are paying quarters to like open the window. It's such an out like, completely out of its mind outlandish sequence of violence to where again it feels like they either knew like somebody in the production like knew somebody who owned one of those things or worked there or something was like hey can we film here and they actually got into these spaces and it just adds a real chaotic energy to the entire thing it's such a cool scene because like he's like in the glass and he he like he's on the, the the phone and talking to one girl. He's like, "Hey, can you get me her?" And she's like, "No, I can't." He's like, "I want to talk to that one and over he, there." And he like goes out, changes like changes uh, rooms, gets in, tries to get her. She won't talk to him. It's just this again, very very Safety Brothers chaos of like, I, all I need is to talk to you for thirty seconds. Just give me thirty seconds, and then he can't. It has that nightmarish quality, you know, like running in quicksand of like, no one will listen to him. And, and it's manic yeah. the entire time. Like nobody will help you. No one will listen to you. It's that whole idea of like the city is a wall of noise and you're just another screening like maniac, like running through the streets. Yes. You know? And it's, uh, I like that you brought up the Safety brothers too, because they actually cite born to win as a direct influence on uncut gems. Oh, like it's, it's gotta be you're like, yeah. 
uh, Adam Sandler's character is like the George Siegel of of that movie. Like he's a di- he's just not addicted to heroin. He's addicted to gambling. Yeah, in a weird kind of way, the heroin absolves Siegel's character of some Jay of some crimes. In, right. In, in terms of oh my god, he's an addict, and like you know he's trying, and underneath like he's a decent. He's a decent guy because Siegel's just so likable and everything he does, he just has that warmth to right. him. Like he has that, you know, oh, I want to be buddies with that guy. And I get why a woman like Karen Black could be attracted to him versus like, you know, uh, Sandler's just a shit heel in Uncut Gems. And I love the movie, but like from the beginning, I'm like, why would anyone trust this asshole with anything? Well, that's been like the main, because I do like that you bring out, because even Siegel like downplays his own addiction. He says like straight up, he's like, I'm not addicted, I'm habituated, you know, like, and he's like a true hustler. Like he talks when they go to try and steal that safe early on, like he smooth talks his way through like that kind of chunky secretary and he's like... You know, talking about her, like how shitty her husband's been. Like after he, it sounds like had like an anal cyst removed or something. Yeah. He's like, hey, have you ever had a? He ever tried an enema? And she's like laughing with each other. And like he even does the same thing that he has that great line with uh, Karen Black that it, it feels like improv, but like their first meeting when she takes him home to her apartment and she goes, ah. Oh, my breasts are too small. Do you think my breasts are too small? And he goes, for what? Like without skipping a beat. And you're like, I just love it because it's just, he, he has a way. His superpower is almost like adding value to people because he doesn't have any value himself. So that he just almost like rate, like his, he just raises everybody else up. And it's like, nah, man, you're great. You're great. Like he tries to value people the same way that he tries to lie to himself and be like, nah, you're doing all right. Like this isn't like the rest of your life. You're just doing this for now and just having fun. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, honestly, closer to, to Pattinson in good time because, you know, uh, uh, Sandler is again, it's selfishness the entire time in that film. It's more like, do he has everything and he keeps just throwing it away. Like he keeps like fucking it up versus like, you have a, a moral mission, or at least you think, with Pattinson in Good Time of like he wants to save his brother. And Born it, to Win might actually be a better title for Uncut Gems. They're very, I mean, they're very similar, and that's why I liked. I mean, at Good Time I prefer to Uncut Gems, and I also really like. I loved Born to Win, and it has that same thing where it's like you get, you understand why people are taken in by his spell. I mean, like he really is, you know, he's charming and very similar to the way that um, you know. Siegel is with uh, Karen Black, but with all the women in particular is very similar to the young girl in, in good time. Uh, This whole thing is like, he's like, she's obviously underage, but he's like making out with her, but it's only because of what he wants from her. Yeah. There's, there's really nothing beyond that. It's like, he's like, I need, because like he doesn't want her to watch the TV. That's what it was. And he's like, yeah, because he's about the news reports about to go on. That would give Connie away. Yeah. Time. The, the thing about Connie that I, I like, that's a little different than George Siegel in Born to Win because Born to Win to me, it doesn't romanticize him. Like he, in the end, in the very bleak ending, frankly, pays for all of his actions. It all comes to roost. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it's a little more sympathetic to him to where good time. I feel like is always sort of judging Pattinson's character because I do see, I don't think it's entirely successful in this, but I do see what the Safties are talking about when they, when they discuss like the themes that are kind of after is that like 
Pattinson's a guy who's always coasting on his own privilege, like from straight up wearing and like charm blackface yeah. masks to like rip off a bank, to in, like basically worming his way into a black family's house, making out with their underage daughter. It's all about like he's a trusty, good-looking white boy, and that's he just uses that, he weaponizes that to his advantage to kind of you know navigate this urban jungle and make it kind of almost like mold to whatever he needs it to be to obtain what he needs next to get his brother out of jail. But like, you know, Born to Win, while it has the same sort of mania about it because of the heroin and and the constant, like it's almost like one escapade after another. It's softer than the Safties. The Safties just go so hard and so shrill. Like I totally understand, like Carrie doesn't like, uh, uncut gems or good time is because it, she's like, it's just at max volume. It's just people screaming at you the entire time. And she's like, like, I get it. I get why people like this, but like, for me, it's just, it's too anxiety inducing. Well, and yeah, you definitely with born to win, you have elements of, he could be happy if he only would just go away with, with Karen black, that she has money. She's made that clear. They go to the beach and it's really beautiful. Like it's so fun with them in um, the car is this great, there's this great dialogue between them. It's, and Siegel's just fucking like, I just don't think I've given him the credit he deserves. He's on fire the whole movie. He's just, he's so, I've always just thought of him as like the guy from Just Shoot Me and the, the dad, grandpa from Goldberg's. You, you know? know what my favorite George Siegel movie was before we watched it? Because I had never seen this either until this Blu ray, and I'm totally like, it might be my favorite, like, new to me thing that I've watched all year. Like I did, we watched it last night and I, I kind of fell asleep cause I was a little drunk, but like I woke up and first thing this morning, like blazed through it straight through. I was like, God damn, I was just stopping it and rewatching scenes and stuff. It was just like, this movie's really a Marvel, but like to me, my favorite George Siegel movie before this was fucking roller coaster where he tries to stop the terrorist. Oh, who's blowing wow. up a local. I've never like, seen that roller coaster. And, oh, you haven't. I have it on Blu-ray, dude. It's so much fun. Well, cause he, there's the scene though, where they're in the car and they're, they're kissing and she's like, kiss my neck. And then he, they switch and he's driving. Kiss my arm. Yeah. Well, she says, kiss my neck. She goes, oh, I yeah. kiss my neck. And she pulls her, her. Oh, yeah. Kiss my arms when they're in bed together later. Yeah. Which I love that scene. Well, they're, all their romance is like very natural and, and, and believable. But also like you, you, just get, you get why they're, they're falling in love. And he says to her, he has his arm around her. He's like, I feel like I'm in high school. Like I'm a kid. This is like, you know, I got my favorite girl. You know, we're, we're just making out. And it's really cool. It's like he's like, we're not having, it's like they're having sex too. But it's more about the the wonder and the kind of innocence of that kind of love, right? Of just like, we're, we're making out like teenagers. When they even have that great scene together where they're just sitting on the floor, like eating chicken one time. And he asked her like, how many dudes have you slept with? And she does it on her fingers and fucks with him a little like bit. Like 60. And it goes up to like 60. And like, you actually see him do the dude thing of taking offense of like, Oh my God, what kind of honey trap have I stumbled into? But it's like, it's this type of question that you would ask a new partner if they were getting together and you kind of had that puppy dog look and you're like, oh, I wonder who this person actually is. And it's just so like Karen Black's so good in this movie. Like the way she plays every scene is just completely entrancing. But she's 
they also have that amazing uh, sequence where they sit on the beach together. Oh yeah, and she more or less is like, "We can just, you can just stop doing this, like, and we can just go find something else." She's like, "You don't need money, like, we'll get money, and like, we'll just figure it out." Like, she genuinely falls in love with this kind of lost puppy of a man, and then he's going through withdrawal. Yeah, that's so the thing. It's this really great. So I think it's the next scene. She's holding him on the beach, and he's, he's shaking. Sweating. He's sweating and kind of he's seeing shit, you know. Yeah, and. I think that's, you know, again, it has a very new Hollywood narrative where it doesn't always directly connect to the next scenes. It's kind of um, episodic, too, like you mentioned. That stuff kind of feels like the King of Marvin Gardens to me. Yes. Like with Bruce Stern and Jack Nicholson. Like, again, you, you were scared. Compared, uh, yeah. yeah the, uh, you had compared it to uh, Rafelson earlier, but like all those BBS productions mm-hmm. that came out like after Last Picture Show and um, Easy Rider and stuff. Yeah, it's um, because you, you get the sense that's why he, you know, he wants to, he has to go back to the city. Because again, like you said, I'm habitual, habituated, you know, but it's like, that's the sense I get. It's like, no, he needs drugs. Like, he needs to go back and score. Because immediately she drops him off with, with Billy, you know, his friend. Um, and it's just like he has to go back into it. He can't, he is addicted. You know, that's part of, that's one of his biggest, like his Kelly's heels. He keeps saying, like, oh, I'm not. That whole classic, I can stop when I want to. It's yeah. like, oh, you're fucked up, dude, because you're doing all this to get your drugs. Yeah, he's like, just a... It's literally a movie of cycles. Like, it's just cyclical addiction that you always know he's going to go back to that. That's why at the end, like, not to spoil it for people who haven't watched it yet, but like... The best ending. It has an incredible ending. It's almost like the ending of Blowout, frankly, um, to where, like he has that exchange with Hector Elizondo to where like, they're afraid he's ripped off enough people. Now some people want him dead. And one of his buddies dies from a hot shot, which is just strychnine in, in a needle essentially, which was meant, which was for, meant him. for him. And like, he goes to talk with Hector Elizondo who's on the outs with him and, and you know, he hooks him up with a bag of heroin and he goes, how do I know this is a hot shot? He goes, what does it matter? He's like, if you die, like you go out with the best like high ever. So he's like, and we all know that that's the way you're gonna go anyway, more or less. It's it's a really, it's a really awesome. I mean, it's a depressing ending, but there kept being moments where I was like, oh man, I hope it's gonna end in the next three minutes. I had, I had that feeling of this is gonna be a great new Hollywood ending of the antihero, the the, the choice, right? Because right. it is, it again like a, like a lot of films from this era is a male anti-hero just going back to the life he it just he's back to square one it seems like right it's that sense of like you went through this whole this whole story and now you're here you know well they're and, all like almost blue collar narratives like five easy pieces is another great example yeah. of this of like of you're just with these working class kind of lower rung dudes and like watching them struggle to break out of their station in life but in the end 99% of them never will. And that was the thing that was like truthful about these films is that it was the idea that like kind of like, you know, neorealism yeah. uh, when you got into the, the Italian, like kind of post-war cinema is that it was about depicting like life as it was, as opposed to like these fantastical narratives. Yeah. It's not pursuit of happiness. with Will fucking Smith. Right. You know, of like, there's no shot night in shining armor. There's no better day tomorrow. The tomorrow is going to be the same as today. 
So you better get used to it. Or and or the best you can ask for is you're gonna fucking die. You know, and the scene. So the scene where his his friend dies is 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 amazing. I mean, it's sad, but it's so tense. Because you one know shot. what's gonna happen. It's one fucking take, and I was like, oh, he's gonna fucking die. Like, yeah, you, you know, but it's just great, and the and their performances are so. Like you can tell they both probably came from the theater because they're so natural together. And you and uh, the guy playing uh, Billy is just like he's like dancing, getting ready to shoot up. Like he's so excited. And, but the, it's this classic thing of he just met a girl outside and basically got her information. Right. And he's like, "You get your girl. I got my girl. We're all going out." The whole thing of like, "I'm gonna well, live they forever." Pulled off that robbery. Too. Yeah, they got money. They're flush. It's like I got the future to look toward. But it's like, yeah, but in this lifestyle, like you're gonna die. And he dies immediately. And it's just, it's so sad because he's talking and ta- talking about his plans. He's off camera. He's in one of the stalls. And you hear him go, Ugh! and then push out. And then you hear him yell, call my mother, Jay. Yeah. Call my mother. It's like, oh my God. It's horrifying. And then he takes him out. He's foaming at the mouth, drops him when they're trying to get in the elevator. And it's literally Billy, the elevator, trying to close on his dead body and his hands accordioning it. And yeah, while George Siegel's like runs slapping away. his face. Yeah. It's like. It's bleak. It's bleak. I mean, it's good fucking filmmaking. <laughs> it's oh, like yeah. Good cinema. <laughs> but it is. It Yvonne is effective. Passer <laughs> make an uplifting movie challenge. Jesus. But which brings us now to really the, the movie of the episode, which is Night of the Juggler, which is a totally different tone than these other three movies that we've discussed. I guess it's closer to Nightmare, but even that feels like yeah. a, a sideways comparison. This movie, in its own weird way, to where like Born to Win is about like addiction and, and kind of the working class struggles. Times Square is about uh, you know the egalitarian creative nature of, of the deuce. Nightmare is not about anything um, at all, frankly. So we'll just leave that one out. This one is, it has its own weird concerns, despite almost being a nonstop 100 minute chase movie. Um, it's all about the decay of New York, how landlords have swooped in and, and destroyed the buildings that they, they want to raise and like, you know, by either, you know, raising the rent too high or flooding them with, let's say unwanted. We're not going to use the words that, uh, our, our, uh, villain uses to describe them because that's the other thing is for those of you who God bless you, will go seek out night, the juggler after this episode. And I hope you do. Cause it is one of our favorite movies of all time. Um, it's not woke. Like it will offend you. Like there were even, I I remember showing this at Vulcan and the first time he goes on one of his, his riffs, you're the whole audience went, Oh wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it is, it is very much (laughs) shocking. Um, but, but I think what where you're going and I don't want to cut you off. It is definitely the sense that, that this villain is bad, but he is definitely the product of his system, right? I mean, he's the, he's the classic, like, I have been pushed out of everywhere I've tried to live. Like, I can't get ahead because of the rich money man. And the person, I mean, he tried to kidnap was the daughter of this rich land, basically landlord. Trump. Yeah, Trump. 
Yeah, but he, he's a Trump stand-in. He tries to kidnap one of Trump's daughters and mistakenly takes Brolin's, Brolin's and Brolin is an ex-cop, now truck driver, who they might as well have just called this movie Night of the Brolin because like he just stomps his way through New York City until he finally gets his girl back. Like it's fucking nuts the lengths he goes to. It's well, and it's crazy too because you're talking about the thematic undertones of this movie, and the other one is just corruption in general, right? That right. you connect that you know Brolin would not disagree with the villain that like yeah, there's this corruption everywhere you look because you find out because he has no friends in the police force because he uh, testified against a lot of them, you know, in a, a, um, a, a legal case, basically saying these guys are taking bribes and money. And now, so Dan Hedaya at his craziest is one of the guys who was not taken suspended. down, suspended and then without pay, pushed to another, he lost his wife, yeah. lost his home, like basically ruined his life. Like he's still a cop, but like everybody knows he's dirty. He yeah. lost his life because of it. And now has sworn vengeance on Brolin for the rest of his life. Dude, Dan Hedaya in this movie gives one of the most insane manic, like out of his mind, wide eyed. Like you wonder what he's on the entire time because like he's just beating the shit out of Brolin chasing him through the streets, shooting at him. He gets hung over a fence and attacked by dogs at one awesome. point. And it looks like they're really attacking Dan Hedaya. Like that's the other thing is this is one of those movies that clearly was made with like as little safety permits as possible because they're crashing cars. They're fist fighting. Brolin actually like broke his leg early in the production. He's limping in certain scenes and other scenes not. Like, you can tell, obviously, didn't shoot it in order. Yeah. So it's like, oh, that's after he broke his leg. That's before. Yeah. Because he's noticeably, like, limping like along. Like, yeah. he really hurt himself. And this movie, is it's so tangible in how, like, like, how much property damage is caused during the narrative of it. Uh, also has one of the great car chases featuring Mandy Patinkin uh, playing a Puerto Rican cab driver. You want to talk about these? Again, one of the more problematic elements of this movie. Dude, Mandy Patinkin, for like three minutes in this movie, it becomes the Mandy Patinkin show where he's just talking in this crazy, like Tony Montana, like Puerto Rican accent, talking about the Puerto Rican 500. You know what the Puerto Rican 500 is, man? That's where 500 of us go down, steal a car, and then we try to go to Long Island. And the next one, whoever lives, lives, and you win and you get drunk. And you're, he's like, ah, and you're like, oh my God. Everybody in this movie was jacked up on something the entire time. Well, and again, it's cool to think about that era where, because Patinkin was a fucking Broadway star. Yeah. Like he was already, I think he had already done uh, The Secret Garden or was about to, um, but he was just, he'd been around before he, you know, was very famous for Nigo Montoya. He was a, you know, he was on Broadway. So you have all these people who were, taken from the stage and it's so cool to see them pop up um i don't even think about the inigo montoya part too until after you said maybe what if the puerto rican cab driver was his early run for inigo montoya like he's reiner's like that that's what i'm looking he's for like, yeah i saw this movie i know you're big on broadway great good for you fucking mandy i saw night of the juggler and i was like that's my guy that's my sword fighter right there well that's the uh, another commonality between these films though thinking of like back to the police and dan hedaya is that you can't trust the cops and you can't trust the criminals right on on 42nd street in Times square in this area you're alone yeah because de niro and the other cop in born to win are just dirty as fuck always trying to plant heroin on him to make him take a pinch you have no friend you have your friends but that's it you don't you any kind of 
organization, like cops, but also any systems, even if it's the criminal system, you can't go there too because he can't deal with the drug dealers anymore, the higher end people, and because he's fucked them over. Which was reflective of the actual system of New York itself, like how much police corruption was actually going through during the 70s. I mean, they made a whole fucking movie about it with Serpico. Yeah. So, and it's like, you know, these movies in their own way, despite photographically capturing the city in particular moments of its history, like thematically they're representing what's actually happening, like in politics, in the economy, in the sociological kind of circles. Like it's crazy. I also watched, um, by accident, maybe not by accident. Maybe this was just like subconscious. I didn't think about it, but Ridley Scott's, uh, someone to watch over me. I have never seen time. that. Not great. Yeah, I've, I've heard. I've it's, heard it's not worth it that it, much. It's yeah. worth watching because it's the type of movie that we lament not having anymore, which is like the sturdy one hundred minute thriller for middle adults. class. Like yeah, of a budget. Yeah, not. Uh, yeah, exactly. Not made for that much money. Has a couple stars in it, but is like taking its own melodrama like pretty seriously, and it's made squarely for like people who are like thirty five and above, you know. And also, when you go like, to the movies, exactly. Yeah. But also, I I do like it. Not to get too far off on a tangent, but it's like a snapshot of the mid eighties because I believe it's eighty six. Um, was it's right after Legend. No, because he because eighty six is when he did um, Black Rain. No, Black Rain's eighty nine. This is before. Oh, you're right. You're this right. is before Black Rain because he goes um, Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, and then he makes this. And this is kind of a weird pivot movie. Okay, because he does this Black Rain, Thelma and Louise. So it's actually the first of his like almost like pulpier, like more human Ridley Scott to where he's not as focused on like design porn. Yeah. Um, and, and, epic. And, his, and, yeah. and the epic feel or like world building. Um, like he actually tries to go against what Harrison Ford criticized him for on Blade Runner as being probably more into now his actors than his sets or was vice versa. But we, benef- we benefit. Yeah. No, nobody's knocking Ridley <laughs> Scott for making fucking Blade Runner. You're in my house. <laughs> But it's like, um, this movie was him, it felt like him trying something new. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also it's like an interesting snapshot of like the kind of cocaine, because the whole narrative of that movie is Tom Berenger is a a working class dude from Staten Island, or maybe it's Long Island. It's one of the two. He's married to Lorraine Bracco, who's like crazy cute in it. Like she wears like nothing but underwear and like a a slinky Mets t-shirt at one point. And like the whole time you're kind of like, why are you, why are you even considering cheating on this woman? Like I would just, I would love her. Who's the other woman? Um, Oh God! Is I it, can't remember not, the actress name. It's not Lauren Hutton in that. Is no, it? she was the one who was married to Tom Cruise before um, Mimi Rogers. I mean Rogers, right? Yeah, right. yeah. Uh, With her, like, yeah, and she's like the she's an upper echelon uh, kind of part of the art world, and that's the whole narrative of the movie. Is he's this working class, like blue collar cop who gets aside to the upper the Upper East Side, and his first big case is babysitting this witness to this murder who, like, she witnesses, like, this kind of uh, Italian kind of, like, thug, like, murder some dude at this, like, crazy art show that she's at. But it's 
an interesting snapshot to bring it back to like the the New York side of things of like Ridley Scott filming mid eighties New York. It's not quite Times Square. It's the Manhattan side of it. So you get him doing his sort of like trademark opulence, but like representing a different part of the city. And it, it's pretty fucking cool. Do you know what'd be cool to also bring in if we were trying to do this like again chronological look at New York and different parts, but also Forty Second Street is Light Sleeper. Because you have Schrader coming back to New York, you know, after Taxi Driver showing a much higher, obviously the higher class side of things. And Light Sleeper takes place in the same world that Someone to Watch Over Me does. Got you. Because what also, it's interesting you have in Light Sleeper, it's during the trash strike too. So it's, it's kind of like, even in the cleaned up New York, there are these times where the bureaucracy breaks down and it's just, it's like Memorial Day weekend, I think, or something, right? right? It's just like trash is everywhere. And it's like, Oh, it's kind of the return of the, the seediness. No, 100%. Um, oh, it's like pushing back out. It's like inevitable. Right. And light sleeper, it kind of likes someone to watch over me. Cause someone to watch over me has so many scenes of Behringer basically babysitting Mimi Rogers at her, like, you know, really high class penthouse and like walking around it, like in the middle of the night and just sort of admiring, like he's again, he's the, Hey man, it's crazy. I'm this working class guy just looking at all this fucking art and shit. And I don't know why he's texting now, but like, uh, but Light Sleeper captures the same kind of like up all night vibe that yes. New York owns. Um, the other one I would always throw into that's a great snapshot, more of this side of the city is After Hours from oh, Scorsese. Yes, to where it is a, a another up all night, run all night like real zany sort of comedy that I really, really like. And I think is one of the more undervalued Scorsese pictures. Yeah. That definitely is more, um, the Upper it, East side. It, it's, yeah. And it's kind of cute. It's, it's, the, it's the cute kind of misadventures of someone like, yeah, there's danger, but it's more comedic danger. Yeah. You know, it seems it's like, folly yeah, more than anything. Very much. Yeah. Um, uh, because that's a, I think that one was only rated PG too. Like it's really tame by Scorsese standards. Yeah. I, I just watched that for the first time last year and really liked it. It's really tremendous. Yeah. I mean, obviously Scorsese along with Woody Allen, Spike Lee, um, William Friedkin are like some of the, I think more than Friedkin are the like premier cinematic kind of, uh, documentarians of, of New York yeah, versus you know, man who loves Chicago and LA. Yeah. Yeah. Ferrara is the other one who's mm-hmm. the big New York dude. Jim Jarmusch is really great at it too. But like, you know, the, these, these guys, like you go to look to their cinema to see like, what did New York look like at, at different time periods? I mean, I would probably say more than Woody, to me, Scorsese and Spike are like the num like the reigning kings, like the guys that I look to. That you could go through their filmography from like you know in Scorsese's case the late sixties, early seventies on, and then Spikes from the eighties. Yeah, but like if you really wanted to see what did New York look like at any particular time from those decades, like you just go pop in one of their movies. Like you pop in, do the right thing, you know exactly what fucking late eighties Brooklyn looked like. You know. Man, Clockers. Oh man, Clockers is such a That's tremendous my favorite film. Spike Lee movie. I just I love it. Um, it's not no, I mean his his best, but I just I enjoy it the most. Oh, nothing ever beats Do the Right Thing for me. Do the Right Thing it is like top possible five movie of all time. Like I just think like 
you talked about before with Times Square to where I think off mic before we started recording is that you were like, oh, one of the, the cool things about it is that you had heard about it and you knew its reputation, but it actually lived up to it and maybe even like exceeded a little bit. And like so few films do that. For me, Do the Right Thing is one of those like quote unquote unassailable classics like Jaws or Lawrence of Arabia or something to where like people tell the Godfather, like people tell you like, Oh, you have to see this. This is one of the great classics. And sometimes you go into those being like, ah, is this really that good? Every time I watch do the right thing, I'm like, Oh yeah, this is what movies are supposed to feel like. Like this is cinema. Oh, that's his masterpiece. But in terms of like what I, I like the Richard price meets, you know, um, Spike Lee for clockers. Sure. I just think it's, and it's, it's, you know, the prequel, it's the fucking prequel to the wire. I mean, full on, oh, yeah, you 100%. know, and that's why I like it so much. I mean, 25th hour, I think is a great spike New York movie too. That yeah. shows a different side. Uh, spike, maybe more than Scorsese is the one who might've given you the most sides of New York. Oh yeah. Lumet's another great one too. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Lumet. Because so, Prince of the City is New York. Prince of the City is tremendous. Talk, about, day cor- after talk about corruption in 81. Yeah. You know, well, like. That's the, another one of the great, well, Serpico. Yep. You know, um, Dog Day is another great one. Like he's, you know, again, he's more in line with the born to win, like, depiction of New York mm-hmm. to where, like, it feels a little looser, a little more lived in, and, like, he just. He doesn't write love letters to the city. The city is more just the act, like it's represented as it is to where like, I think Scorsese and Spike in particular, like are so infatuated with like being from New York and, and this is my home. This is the, 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 the playground that I've always kind of been in and has always kind of built my dreams around. Like there's some infatuation with it that comes through in their cinema to where like Lumet, I think is just kind of like, this is New York. This is what it fucking feels like. Like take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, he's very, he's still proud. He shows the things that are great, but also the things that are dirty. But yeah, you think about Spike Lee, I think Crooklyn is almost like a fantasy, right? You know, and it's, it's, purposely done that way it's more i think more fantastical than other stuff he's done um but red hook summer i know it's a, a little talked about movie yeah. and not as one of his better movies but is another great kind of boots on the ground representation of, yeah. of a specific neighborhood in new york but do you want to get into questions yes. we haven't done these for a while i know it's been a, couple, a month and a half longer i think yeah two months let's get into it you better strap it in baby i'm ready With the 
And we're back with questions about 1980s Night of the Juggler. Martin, double feature. So we could do with any of these. Uh, obviously, we've been like giving a lot of ideas of many movies that are inspired by this or could you know compare to this. And we kind of already did a four movie, you know, group already of watching these. Um, Don't be a pussy. Stop stalling. I know. So for me, I was going to do with uh, Born to Win. I was going to do Inside Lou and Davis. Um, I think is a, an interesting like pairing of. Yeah. A very different kind of movie. And just so both losers. Both both New York losers, mm-hmm. another era of a, a different sure. part. It's Greenwich, like the actual like but the idealized Cohen view of Greenwich, um, a different part of New York with a different subset of people. Sure. Um, in a lot of ways more privileged. He a lot of times came from money. We're rich kids who I want to be an artist and move to this place. And you get that sense with some people there. Um but again, the similarly to um, to JJ in Born to Win, um, Lewin is this guy who's constantly asking for favors. Like he, yeah, he never met a person he wouldn't beg for, you know, a coat. I think of specifically um, with Adam Driver's character when he meets him, he's met him, he's known him for like 10 fucking minutes. He goes, You got a couch I can sleep on? Just, com- just that mentality of. You know, he doesn't have the the hustler mentality of being a drug addict, but he does have the addiction of like, I'm gonna take everything I can from you to power my dream, which is not going anywhere. Well, it's a it's a movie about the let's say per, perhaps when your 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 faith in your own artistry is misplaced. And you'll do anything to be the artist, to be the next like great folk singer, the next great painter, the next great filmmaker. We've all known these people multiple times in our life who have these amazing aspirations and like won't actually sync with anything in reality while pursuing them. Like they they refuse to get a day job, they refuse to, you know have any real adult responsibilities, buy a car, be in a relationship, get a house, like any of that shit's out the window because it's all about pursuing their art. And in doing that, they adopt like this odd slacker mentality of like, can I crash at your place? Can I crash at this place? Like they're the ultimate mooches. Yeah. And he, he's also a kind of person who similar to JJ has numerous outs he has, a, he has a numerous ways to get out of this and, and right. find some other type of success. So for JJ, you know, it's like, oh, I could find true love. I could just go away with her and live at the fucking beach. Or we could go to wherever we want to go, you know. And with, with Lewin, it's like, oh, he's like, I'm going to give up, become a merchant marine. But he's an asshole. He told his sister to throw all his shit out. So now he doesn't have his merchant marine license. It's always someone else's fault, right. you know. But then the whole thing of earlier on, he... um he plays on uh, the record with uh, Justin Timberlake, Jim's character with Adam Driver, the really cheesy, hey, Mr. Uh, Kennedy. Outer space. space. It's, it's fucking awesome. But he he is so on the wire and so just like down to the wire all the time, he goes to get basically cash out. And he's like, the guy's like, well, I can give you royalties and we'll sign you to the fucking song. And if it hits, or give you 200 bucks right now. And he's like, I need the money right now. And of course it hits. You know, someone says later, oh, whoever's on that's going to be. It's like he always is getting in his own fucking way. Very similar to JJ's. Like, you know, if he just stopped for one second and well, just, yeah, and there's just no, thought about it. There's no, 
like foresight beyond the current hustle. Yes. It's, it's, it's day to day, you know? And again, it's two people who they're not even in that much trouble. I mean, you think about Lewin, it's like, he still like has many places to go if he got in trouble, you know? And Jay too, it, it seems that way where it's like, he still comes from, it seems like he's kind of dropped down a few classes. Like he came from a little bit more money and then he, I think the drugs just ruined it. That's how his wife ended up. They both got into drugs. She became a prostitute. I think they found that and kind of been dropping down through the classes. Well, because even when JJ narrates his own life a little bit, is that he's like, we got two kids. Like they're at her mom's. They're at her mom's. Like it sounds like yeah, they had a semblance of a stable life, and then that denial of the the addiction is what got in the way and destroyed everything is that yeah. they just kind of kept chasing that dragon and until like most addicts like everything fell apart yep double feature for you i'm going to stay with night of the juggler because i'm real as fuck and i'm doing 1977's death promise nice which the the trailer i also played uh before night of the juggler and i think is probably the most uh, spiritually connected to this movie um, because it's about a young Kung Fu expert from either the Bronx or Queens who, you know, the evil landlords who all meet in almost like James Bond, like Spectre style. Like they have these like meetings to where they talk about how shitty their tenants are and how they're going to try to get them out. And like they flood the buildings with rats and they try to like, you know, cut off all the power and the air conditioning to force people to move out and or hike the rent to where they can't, they can't uh, pay it anymore so that they can demolish it and sell it off. Um, but it becomes a revenge story about this karate expert who kind of looks like if young Al Pacino was cosplaying as Tony Danza while like <laughs> kicking people in the face. Cool. Like, yeah, he, he's got a real like, you know, Guido samurai thing going on, but one of the landlords ends up killing his dad. So he goes in a rip roaring, you know, rampage of revenge to take down all these landlords in his path. And it is one of the great gonzo seventies exploitation movies that has, you know, the backyard Kung Fu and karate, a lot like something like the devil's express with one of the greatest names in, in actorly history, uh, Warhawk Tanzania oh, is, shit. is the the lead of The Devil's Express, if you've never seen that movie. Not a good movie, um, but a movie still worth watching, uh, just because he's a black kung... Uh, expert in air quotes, kung fu expert. But it's in the same vein of like those movies that were coming out and were being made on the, the super cheap after like... Shaw Brothers came to America. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Lee became huge. Golden Harvest was founded and started, you know, importing guys like Jimmy Wang Yu, and they took over the grindhouses and were, were generating these huge returns. Obviously, um, these American producers were going to try and like replicate it in some way, so they made like the shitty uh, Times Square like grindhouse version of them. I believe Al Adamson even made a few too. Uh, like uh, to try and compete on like the drive-in circuit. But this movie is out of its fucking mind. It's one of the ultimate like beer with your buddies 
you know, while you just laugh and watch a dude get, you know, his head shoved into a bag that's full of rats at one point where they attack him and like the, the real trashy, the fights are about as good as something in like parole violators. Uh, they're not great, but they're all, they're just so tangible and they're, they're those low budget style of action of like, we're going to go into a room and we're going to break everything in this room in the pursuit of like adding anything resembling production value to it. Just great. And also if you've never seen the trailer, I threw the trailer up on our, our uh, Twitter feed today because it's just, it's so fucking awesome and it totally captures the vibe of the film itself. Like got to seek it out. It's on vinegar syndrome blue okay. right now. Cool. So it's easy to see. So, Next question. Remake or no remake? Do you want to go or me? I'll go. Okay. Um, for most of these, I would say no. I mean, I think they are like, well, like the whole point of this episode was to show, you know, here's looking at New York during certain time periods. I don't want yeah. to see fucking Todd Fields Joker. You know, I don't want to see the, this like made up version. Did you and- say Todd Fields Joker? <laughs> I was going to talk Fields I, All of a sudden, the light just went off in my head, and I went, I would watch that. What the fuck are you talking about? If Todd Field came out and was like, I'm making Joker, like, fuck you, Todd Phillips. Get out of my way. I'm making Joker. Like, I would watch the shit out of that because, like, that's weird art house, like, Joker. And especially if Joaquin's still in it. Like, imagine Joaquin in a Todd Field movie. True. That's going to some weird esoteric levels that I'm not prepared for. So I apologize because I like Todd Field. I... I don't like Todd Phillips Joker and like um, his replication of like that seventies New York. Look. Right. Well, yeah, again, I think all these are so special because they're like these just snapshots, right. Of times square or just New York in general. If I were to remake one, I mean, I think the night of the juggler is the one to do just because it's an action movie. I mean, I would think of almost the way that like, um, Tony Scott remade taking a Pelham one, two, three, like, which is, you know, another time period movie of New York, but doing that, and doing a Tony Scott style update of when he does update it because what like Gandolfini's basically playing like Boom Bloomberg and yeah. it is doing that post Wall Street collapse take on on New York and like Pelham One Two Three story where like the original Pelham One Two Three is one of the great New York movies from yes. the seventies and captures that specific time period. Scott does update that one pretty well exactly. for like the the Wall Street collapse and like even Travolta's whole like motivation is that he was like an insider trader, right? Who becomes a butt boy in prison. Yeah, because well, but again, I think it's, it connects well to what we're talking about. Because or was he a Madoff type? He was like a Madoff guy. Okay, he was a yeah. bad dude. Like he was a Ponzi scheme kind of guy. Yeah, but then like, he got his butthole just <laughs> torn. Like that movie is so fucking weird because Travolta gives like one of the ultimate mega Travolta performances, oh, yeah. and he's just running he, around. He's the too much in that. I think. No, I I don't <laughs> think he's enough. Frankly, like you can't get enough mega Travolta. Like when he commits to it, I love him to death. And like he's running around screaming about like prison rape and shit in that movie. I remember seeing that in the theaters and being like, "What's happening here?" Like this is one of the strangest fucking things. I did not expect Tony Scott to to 
bring this out of you there, Travolta. Well, and then Denzel's at 11 in that one, too. I mean, he's doing the full-on charm, full-on... Well, he's doing his version of Math Al. Yeah. Like, the rumpled, like, grumpy, like... Just... Bad tie. Exactly. Like, yeah. I love him in that movie. You know what? Now I want to rewatch Tony Scott's Taking Your Pillow one, two, three. I did it for our Tony Scott episode. Yeah. Oh. I didn't revisit that one. It's oh. one of the few I didn't. And I, like, I always remember, like, like, I don't think it's great or anything, but, like, there's stuff in it that's interesting. It's certainly not as good as Unstoppable. Like, Unstoppable is fucking awesome. No. When it, I think we talked, it's like, uh, Pelham one, two, three was like a warm up for unstoppable. He obviously yeah. was in train mode, but again, I, again, if I were to do night of the juggler, I would do a Tony Scott style update to today with the politics of New York today. Um, and I don't and, even know what night of the juggler today would look like. Like, are you, is it like almost like David Harbor crashing cars through like the Disney store in times square? Like be kind of funny. How does that even work? Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of would be interesting to just do, like, just wreck fucking Times Square. Obviously, you couldn't. I don't think you could actually shoot down there and destroy anything. But um, I don't. it's so rare, honestly, that big films even shoot in New York anymore. It's just like, they don't do it. You know, everything's in studios in Atlanta. Well, there's no tax incentives, I think, anymore. And, like, I think it's a branding thing. Because one of the great things about watching these old New York movies, particularly from, like, the late 70s and early 80s, is looking at all of the crazy marquees and like the sex shops and the lights and everything. And like, because there were no rights attached to it. It wasn't logos. It wasn't stuff like that. It was just like you were capturing the, these uh, billboards and everything that were trying to get people to come in. It was just part of the environment to where like shooting in Times Square now might prove to be more difficult because you would have a lot of clearance stuff. All of it. Because, yeah, you're just Broadway, around, like, Broadway yeah. and Target and, like, it's all Coke. just brands to where, like, you would have to clear those. Yeah, it's well, it's like the shot in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, like, the one shot that's actually in New York. Like, right. you couldn't shoot that today. Like, you'd have to completely wipe everything clean. Yeah, yeah it would be difficult. I just don't, like, Night of the Juggler, like, it would almost have to take, like, like, I've thought about, like, what if you transplanted it into another city, which mm. could be kind of cool. Like, honestly, Austin, Night of the Juggler, would be sort of fun. Like, if you ran through some of the older parts of this city and stuff, like, you could capture a lot of interesting stuff. Or actually, um, Atlanta, because, like, I lived in Atlanta, Atlanta for eight years because Atlanta... New Orleans. ...stands in for, like, New York and, Ch and L.A. and everything now, like... They, if you look at the Rialto Theater in any chase in any movie, that's right across my buddy's house. Like, if you watch Venom, they cross the Rialto like 10 times. It's supposed to be San Francisco in that one. But, Ooh, I, but I was just about to say San Francisco Night of the Juggler could be cool. Yeah, I mean, modern San Francisco. Or again, just, Philly! Yeah. Philly Night of the Juggler. Oh, <laughs> shit. Dude, Actually, we just found it. We stumbled on it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the new setting for our Night of the Juggler remake. <laughs> so, final question. Well, no, I, oh, you I haven't asked. Well, I guess oh. I answered mine. We, I don't have to do my remake either. We just ran through, right? Yeah. Right. Well, unless you, unless you had one, I didn't mean to skip over you. That's okay. I'm, I only feel slightly slighted. I, I thought you. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, let's go to face melter. Yeah. or nay. For, for night of the juggler. Yeah. 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 Um, oh yeah. Yeah. I think this is, <laughs> I think it's like unmatched in the face melter department. Yeah. Cause it, it, it doesn't stop. I don't, I don't know how you couldn't call it one. Um, like it doesn't fucking stop. Also, like you said, just the, besides the action and the crazy production, just the unwokeness of every other lines, like, Whoa, 
So you can't not watch it and just be like totally shocked by what you're seeing, whether it be like a car chase or like people being injured. Anything that comes out of Cliff Gorman's mouth. We haven't even touched on uh, Richard Castellano yet, who's like the the fat Italian detective who's chasing, uh, brawling around and like kind of tracking him. But he's like one of the few upstanding ones. But like... He's almost has his own like weird comedy that's going on because like his daughter's getting married. His daughter's getting married, so he's constantly taking phone calls about like, should she buy this dress? Do you know how much my fucking daughter's wedding costs? Like he's just doing the whole thing. There's that amazing scene in the yogurt shop oh. where the movie just stops dead for Richard Castellano to go into a yogurt shop, order a yogurt. And then discuss the logistics of making frozen yogurt on a stick. And then because he's like, oh, my brother-in-law, I think is going to invest in one of these. Do you make a lot of money? They're like, yeah. He's like, oh, because he keeps asking me. I should invest with him. And then they tell him how frozen yogurt's actually made, that it's, it's like bacteria. In cultures. And- in cultures. And he spits it out and leaves. And you're like, what did this scene add to the movie at all? So what I got from that movie, uh, that scene... Um, connects to our whole conversation about uh, Times Square and New York is like, this is the gentrification and of a way of New York. It's like, it's like the kind of like, here's an Italian cop who's like, wants the real deal and wants a fucking ice cream. And he's, it's this frou-frou new thing. that's taking up. This yoga does good for you. Oh, he also has that great scene where he actually shows down with the Donald Trump stand in. Mm -hmm. I deal with murderers. Rapists, the worst of society. They don't scare me. You, scare. you scare me. Like he's so fucking like I don't know, man. Like this whole movie, to your point, like it's breakneck and it's it's nonstop the entire time, and it really is just runs almost purely on adrenaline. But like, there are so many odd tangents that kind of go on that just add this texture that no other movie possesses. You just. It, it's it's all of these these little like grace notes and, mm-hmm. and um, moments with these characters where you get to know them to where like it, yeah it is either commenting on the city or the people who live there themselves like it's just completely of its time and could never be remade again it's just it, it's that one moment uh, one last thing I was just thinking another double feature for now the juggler would be uh, breakdown. The uh, Jonathan Mastow film with um, oh yeah that'd be a good one uh, just an idea of a kidnapping thing a very similar idea of it's it's different than that because it's more of the like he's being gaslit they're like your wife was never here but still that sense of a man stopping at nothing you know and chase the constant chase of I'm gonna get her back um, or the vanishing oh is another and the, one. oh vanishing hundred um, percent yeah other other scary kidnap movies no because I was trying to think of it. Other like chase films that are really, really great. The Seven Ups yep. is another one. And that's another great New York movie that would play incredibly well with Night of the Juggler. Because that car chase in the middle of it that goes on forever. I saw Vanishing that. Point. Yeah. Well, that's more West Coast, though, where this is uh, straight up New York. Because I remember watching that when George Pelicanos programmed 
like a bunch of movies at the Austin Film Festival. What? Was the he here? First year, yeah, the first year that The Deuce came out and he introduced all of them. That's and awesome. like I remember going and actually like talking to George Pelicanos and asking him about like the marquees and stuff in The Deuce and being like, oh man, did you pick these? Like, why did you pick these movies? And he's like, these are just the movies I fucking love. Like, he's so cool. But of course he, he is. He loves the seven ups. Like, he thought you talked about that movie like it was Citizen Kane, man. And I mean, I have to agree with him. I, I love it. I actually like that movie more than French Connection. Oh, wow. I'm not telling you it's a better movie than French Connection. Because, I mean, obviously, Scheider's kind of playing the same exact character in both. But, like, it, I think the car chase in it is actually superior to French Connections. Is Marathon Man New York? Yeah, that's another good. Yeah, that's I mean, another I mean solid Slashinger one. in general. I mean, with yeah. Midnight Cowboy again, and with that, but of just a guy running through 1975. Yeah, uh, you know, in New York, be another one to kind of watch to see the change. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's a really good one. There's a lot because we haven't even we should almost do another episode that's focused on like the post Wall Street. New mm. York movies and like that representation uh, kind of where light sleeper and light sleeper or, or someone to watch over me kind of plays into where like you watch the city evolve into this haze of like cocaine and money that takes over, you know, that and leaves, you know, the, the places that uh, night of the juggler is cinematically representing like way in it's, it's powdery dust. And if the film were better bonfire, the vanities with the book, you know, yeah. the Tom Wolf book. And that is exactly. And that's like, sort of the peak of everything. Because <laughs> po- what's Wall Street? 87? 87 or 88. I think yeah. it's 87. And yeah. that's like the peak of like, you know, the, the cinematic depiction of the city starts to change like mid 80s. Then Wall Street really becomes like that next big one. And then you get into 90 and Bonfire of the Vanities, despite being a great folly, is also like. It's sort of where that aesthetic sort of peaks and thankfully crashes because that movie is not very good. When they go back to with American Psycho. Right. Com- you know, it's completely living in that, you know, it's supposed to take place in 87. That universe. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the whole Masters of the Universe, like Wall Street shark types. Yes. You know, or I mean, Wolf of Wall Street is another great mm-hmm. one too. Yep. That one's almost more of a, it's not so much a New York movie. It's like a Long Island movie because yeah. it all, it's it doesn't, you don't see a whole lot of the city in it. Yeah, because they're up in their towers, their golden towers. Yeah. You know, or offices yeah. and, and stuff. And like some of the best is like the, the when she's like the queen of Bay, of Bay Ridge and you go into Bay Ridge, like that's the most city you might actually get in the movie yeah. itself. But anyway, Martin, this was great. Yes. I always love talking New York cinema and just movies in general with you. Uh, what do we have next? Well, this is so if this was the ultimate Jacob episode, next week is kind of the ultimate me in a lot of ways. I'd yeah. say you're a big well, fan of stuff. I don't know about ultimate you because it's not slasher centric, but it's close because we're going to do next week Shark Week. So we're going to do a whole bunch of shark movies because we actually did a shark movie marathon together. But you're going to have to like stay tuned next week to find out which ones exactly put some chum in the water. We'll see you then. See you then.